All right, we're going to read uh, the first couple verses here um, and get started. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, so uh, it had been about four years. If you're new, this is your first time. Uh, Paul is writing this letter. He is imprisoned. He's writing this letter to these churches in the uh, Ephesus, in the area surrounding Ephesus and in Ephesus. And, and Paul had actually lived there and ministered there for years uh, earlier before. And it's been about four years since then, and he's been in prison now. And he has received letters. He's heard reports from people that have visited him from that area about these churches. And he's found out this information, and as a result of what he hears, he goes to the Lord and starts praying in praise, giving thanks for what God is doing with the Ephesians. And he's thankful for two important characteristics that indicated the authenticity of their salvation. It was their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the other believers. Uh, you know, it's interesting. In the New Testament, it does not separate Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord. He is both or he is neither. In Romans 10, 9, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I think um, a lot of times I hear us so like, like talk about, and we need to hear about the saving aspect of what Jesus can do, being able to save us from our sins, being able to save us from all of that stuff that we couldn't save ourselves from. But he didn't just save you from something, he saved you for something. And you need to understand and know that, that you receive him as Savior out of receiving him as Lord. So, so we first declare him Lord, and as a response to declaring him Lord over my life, I receive his saving work in my life. And so that's really important because I, I, I find more and more that, that literally we replace him as Lord, uh, but in reality, that's the first acknowledgement that we need to come to in acknowledging that we needed a Savior. We needed a Lord. And, and so he talks about there. Then he mentions how their faith that they not only received, but how they were demonstrating their faith in loving other believers, in loving other people that were Jesus followers. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Jesus follower and you're just like, I don't know what you believe, this is great because I want you to hear about the expectations you should have from us. I know. Well, let's just get on the same page, right? Um, and so Paul mentions faith and love here, and he mentions it in other places as well, uh, speaking to the importance of it. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Okay, so those two dimensions of spiritual life are inseparable. In fact, 1 John 2, 9, it says, whoever is in the light and hates his brother is actually still in darkness. Okay, so, so they, they, like, you can't, have a, a, you can't have salvation in Jesus Christ and hate your brothers and sisters. Okay, you, it's incompatible. It doesn't work. And so Christian love does not pick and choose which believers it will love. Like, Christ loves all believers. And, and so, 
and, and that, that's so important for us because a lot of times I hear us like in a Christian way say, I don't hate them. I just strongly dislike what they're doing. Well, you're treating them like you hate them, okay? You may say that and feel good about that, but how they're receiving what you're doing is hateful. You know, and, and it's interesting, like sound theology is no substitute for love. Without love, it even says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, without love, the best doctrine, it says, and it says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. True salvation produces true love. It just happens. A loveless faith is one of the most disheartening things that you can encounter and experience. And it is so sad when I meet or connect with people and they have such a, a, a knowledge and understanding of Scripture and all of these things, and yet their love for other people is so shallow. It's one of the saddest things to, to experience, how, how somebody can know so much about this and yet be so miserable. That they can know so much about God, about what he says, about who he is, about what he offers us, and yet we can treat people how some of us treat people. It is disheartening. It was for these reasons that Paul said, after seeing and hearing, or really hearing about how they're modeling this faith that they believed in and how they're demonstrating it through love to the other followers of Jesus, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And, and, and we see this component of Paul, how, how Paul looked for ways to affirm the people he was reaching. Do you realize the church in Corinth, uh, in 1 Corinthians, like you read about the church in Corinth and you go, that is a jacked up church in a jacked up culture. Lots of issues continually happening and it's like, man, uh, like God, your grace really is amazing for loving them. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 4, like, like we literally see how Paul even thanked God for them. And I go, man, how did, how did he do that? Well, he looked for traces of grace and found reasons for gratitude in the people that he was trying to lead and minister to. And, and this is so important. Like, we need to look for God's grace in other people, in particular in other believers, because it is so easy to be critical of other people who say they're Christians, isn't it? Oh, come on. Just, you don't have to say yes, because we'll all, just, you can do this. It's really easy, isn't it? One of the questions I was thinking about is, man, am I looking to affirm or am I looking to bring down? And one of the things that God has, has been working with me on, uh, as I even reflected in the last year and looked towards and, and we're in this new year, one of the things that was very uh, huge that, that he was pointing out that was a glaring hole in me is how I need to be more affirming to people. How I need to affirm people more. Um, because I just find, to be honest, it's just really easy to find and to see the flaws, isn't it? And I think as well, you know, I, at least how I was raised, it's like if you do the right thing, like you were supposed to do the right thing, right? Like, like 
it's like, well, of course you did that. Of course you told the truth. You're supposed to tell the truth. Of course you should do that. Like you're just doing what you're supposed to do. And I find a lot of times that, that we have those expectations, but then when someone struggles or stumbles, then we're quickly, uh, we quickly bring them down. Uh, but in reality, if we're actually with a hopefulness looking to affirm other people and not in a fake way of, of like just trying to think of something that's positive, but, but literally going, man, how can I affirm them? How do I see and know that God is alive and active in their life? And if nothing else, man, they have been a recipient of God's grace, and I can acknowledge that. And so it's just a mindset that Paul had, and I see that it's something that I know I personally, I need to grow in this. He keeps going in verses 17 through 23. It says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul prays uh, for the, the believers to be enlightened about the greatness of God's plan. And, 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 and what was his plan and what was his purpose as well? We've already looked. Uh, he's affirming even now in this prayer what he's already said in verses 3 through 14. But Paul's desire was for the believers to fully realize what their new identity meant. He wanted, to have, he wanted them to have a greater understanding of what this new identity, all that was brought into it. And he's reminding them not only of verses 3 through 14 here, but he's also moving the needle forward now. He uses three phrases that get at the idea of this illumination, really. This, this spirit of wisdom, um, um, a, a, an idea of, a, of, of revelation. He talks about having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He says that your heart... It has eyes. Paul is asking God to give them spiritual eyes to see who God is and what he has done for them already. Uh, a, a famous pastor, Warren Wiersbe, tells this story about William Randolph Hearst and how he came across, he read about this, this famous, uh, this rare, famous painting. And he had a massive, extensive painting collection. And so he sent his agent all around uh, the world to try and find this painting and to buy it. And after an extensive search, his agent came back and reported that he already had it in his safe. And, and the reality is we and Paul is continually reminding them all that you already have in Christ. Illumination is the idea that God opens our eyes to know him and his truth. Inspiration is what we refer to as the nature of scripture, but illumination is how we understand scripture. We must seek the Spirit's help in understanding this truth. Remember, it talks about that he may give you the spirit of wisdom, right? So, so God's, mind, God's mind is literally revealed in scripture, but we have to have the Holy Spirit 
to understand it accurately and deeply. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, it says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You can't search the depths of God. Good luck with that. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Underline, circle, memorize, highlight, double tap. That is incredible. That's incredible. Do you understand that? Do you see that? Like literally, we have the mind and the heart of God. We have God's words right here. But without the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot comprehend. You cannot apply. This will not all reach where it's designed to reach if not for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows the depths of who you are, everything that's going on in there, whether you like it or not. And the Holy Spirit knows and searches the depths of God, which I could never even begin to comprehend or get to. And he says, all of that is available through my power that you have access to. We need this being revealed to us. We need that. For some of you, when you came to, well, when, for all of you who have a relationship with Jesus, he brought it, he illuminated it to you. He brought it to light. You received it, like, like he made it real to you. Uh, when, when we think about this revealing process, uh, there's, a, there's a funny story in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus, after he's resurrected, he finds these two guys who are walking on this road to Emmaus, which is outside of Jerusalem, and they're traveling, and they're talking about all that has happened from Jesus' death uh, to the reports of his resurrection, and Jesus walks with them. And he starts talking with them. And he starts teaching them all of these things. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 31, it says this. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Okay, so, so he was teaching them scripture, but then towards the end of it, all of a sudden, he reveals who he is through it. He does the same thing later in that same chapter with his disciples after he's appealed or appeared to them. And he says, look, this is me. Can you give me some food? I'm hungry. And then it says in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what we need. You and I need to be praying for this when we open this, when we study this. And here in Ephesians, Paul asks God to give Christians eyes to see who they are. The psalmist prays something like this in Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Later in verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And then in verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. 
See, we often, uh, we, we, we often fail to seek out the Holy Spirit's wisdom and, 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 and for him to bring this to light for us because we experience this temptation uh, to be self-sufficient, right? Like, I don't need God's help, you know? And I was really, really convicted of this last night. Because here I am studying it up, and I've got all these commentaries, all these studying resources, and we have so much available to us today uh, to study God's Word. And, and, I, and I'm going through all of this to be accountable, to do everything the right way, God, and all of this. And, and literally, as I'm reading that, he goes, he goes, hey, maybe you should ask what I think. And, and, and there it is, the danger of me just going at this and, oh, I've got the resources. Oh, I know what this says. I know the intent. I know the history. I know the writer. God, I have the resources. I know what the originals are. I know what the intent. Oh, I know this, God. Like, this is great. This is awesome. And I could be doing all of that and yet miss the very words of God to me. In that moment, through the Holy Spirit. Because even in the greatest studies of the greatest commentaries of the greatest original languages, the people that were there needed Scripture to be enlightened to them. You and I need that. We need to be praying for that. We should be asking God, please give me understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, this is larger than me. God, you know what's needed in my heart, in my life right now. And, 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 and God, I don't know what God is. I don't know what, he, I don't know what you're doing right now. I don't know how to seek your will in this right now, God. And, and, and we approach him in that place with humility. And in that place of humility, he does incredible things. And that's how we should be studying God's word. That's why we go through this verse by verse is we want to study God's word. We want to learn about him, but it's not just about us studying it. We are asking the Holy Spirit to bring to light whatever we need to see from God that he's going to have specifically for us as a church and for you as an individual. By calling, uh, like, like his view of God was incredible. He calls God the father of glory. He's saying that God is the source of glory and power. God is omnipotent. He is perfectly capable of giving us whatever we need. And, and the first reason Paul gives for our needing God to open the eyes of our hearts is so what? He says, so that we might know him better. In verse 17, right, he says, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, so that we might know him better. The theologian D.A. Carson says, what is the greatest need in the church today? The one thing we need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. In Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul writes this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him. The Christian life is about knowing God and making him known to others. 
J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, says that those who know God have four characteristics. Great energy for God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and great contentment in God. We should pray for God to open our eyes that we may know him better. And if you've never known him, I challenge you to pray for him to make himself known to you. Paul expands on the idea of knowing God better by praying that we may grasp certain truths about salvation. And he mentions three particular blessings distinguished by the word what. In other words, he goes, what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches or, or the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints? And then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe? So he's saying, I want you to grasp these specific what's uh, that I am going to break down for you. And he, and he first asked God to open their eyes to know the hope to which he's called them. The hope of the calling. You know, our salvation is marked by massive hope. You know, in Romans 5, 2, Paul describes our hope in sharing in the glory of God. He also speaks in other places of the hope of salvation that we now have. The hope of righteousness in Galatians 5, 5. The hope of the resurrection of an incorruptible body in 1 Corinthians 15. And then the hope of eternal life in Titus. God has called us to a distinct way of life with a glorious future hope. When we extend the gospel to people, when I share the gospel, I am extending hope to that person. And, 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 and today, hope is extended to you. And for many of us, we've never had hope. And when we came to Jesus, that was the first time there was a glimmer of hope in our life. Because every thought of ourselves was self-destructive. Every thought that we had about ourselves was how much we have let other people down or let ourselves down. I'll tell you what, when you are not following Jesus, it is incredible how self-aware you actually are. And I don't understand why we pretend that people are so unaware when we've never been so miserable as a culture. Like, I, I don't have to, like, anymore when I share the gospel with someone, I don't have to convince them, hey, you know you're really miserable, right? Like, you really know that, don't you? Like, how awful your life is? Like, no, there is an emptiness. There is something that they are continually trying to find. Something that can quench that thirst. He says this glorious inheritance of what we receive, right? This glorious inheritance. Not only are we a glorious inheritance for Jesus, but also the inheritance that we receive through Jesus, and he is reminding us once again of verses 3 through 14. And if you're brand new today, you just need to know what he's talked about with inheritance, okay? In other words, God, in his sovereignty, has looked down before time and said, hey, I want to adopt you. I want to adopt you. In spite of all that, I want to adopt you. I want to give you um, every spiritual blessing, Every spiritual blessing. I want to bring redemption into your life. I want to bring forgiveness. I want to give grace to you. I want you to be a co-heir co with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to adopt you as a son, and you're going to get all the benefits that Jesus Christ has. You're going to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ, and I am on top of that going to give you the Holy Spirit. He says, do you remember that? And, and, and allow that to push you forward. Go deeper with that. He reminds them of the power, and Paul says God's almighty power is available to them. Think about where some of these Ephesians were coming out of. 
where they were coming from. Some were formerly caught up in, in magic, in, in, in the Artemis occult, uh, astrology, and, and even emperor worship that many of them all had come out of and were still battling. The people in, of this culture, they lived in fear of hostile spiritual forces. Like that was very real to them. They, they, they had great fear of that. And so Paul is assuring them that God's power is supreme over all other enemies. Now, why do we often fail to rely on his power? Why do we look at that and we go, oh, that's cool. But why, why is that just not something at the forefront of our minds? And, and I think part of it is, is it, it, it's like it comes from this view of ourself that we're pretty capable, we, we can do quite a, quite a bit of things, uh, maybe that historically hasn't been done before, and, and we have these abilities and all of that, so we're pretty self-sufficient. Like, God, I'm glad this power's here. I, I, I plan to reach into that at some point, but not really right now, God. Uh, things are pretty good. People are healthy. Um, I've got a lot to be thankful for, God. But the reality is this. We so often fail to live in light of the reality that there is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. We don't see it. And I, I am reminded of this because a lot of times, if I say, hey, I'm going to talk about spiritual warfare, I have people come up to me and go, oh, well, I don't really get that one. Like, I get it. Yeah, you got to talk about it. It's in there. But I don't really see how that really applies to me. Or, you know, I feel like that's just something Christians say and all that. And I'm like, Do you have any idea the amount of evil that is in opposition to everything that God wants to do in your life, in this church, in the mission, in your marriage, in every single thing? He wants to absolutely destroy it, and he is in opposition to it. And the danger for us living where we're at is we're very self-sufficient. And you don't, for many of us, I want to even ask, when was the last time you literally went, my goodness, this isn't just bad, this is absolutely evil, there is something deeper and spiritual behind this. When was the last time you actually felt that, if you're a follower of Jesus? Because it is very real. And if you question that, like go, go to a third world country or something like that where they are desperately looking for hope and you see it and it is unavoidable and it shakes you and, and, and it is something that is, that, that, that you, it's like literally put in your face, the spiritual oppression, the spiritual warfare that is going on. But, but I think for a lot of us, we're just okay or, or this because guess what? Even when we notice something that bothers us, everything's moving so quickly, we forget about it in two seconds. Right? There's something next. Even my news. Oh, that was bad. Oh, and I keep going. I, I experienced an interaction with someone else. Well, there's somebody else waiting. Da -da 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 -da. And, and so we just keep moving forward. And I find that my greatest fear uh, is, more often than not, that God, I pray that I don't stop seeing that. Because when I stop seeing that and acknowledging that spiritual warfare, it's not that it's disappeared. It just means that I am living in a way that is naive to the opposition that's actually in my life right now. And you need to know that. That, that is real. That is, that is happening. Even though you may not see it. There's opposition to you following God. To illustrate God's mighty power, Paul speaks of God exalting Jesus above all, and he begins with the resurrection. You know, uh, in the Old Testament, they, they, they measured power by creation and then by the exodus of the Israelites. But, but now there is another greater picture of power, the resurrection of Jesus. And in Romans 8, 11, it says this. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Underline, highlight, everything else. Huge verse. In other words, the same power, this, this, this power that resurrected Jesus up from the dead, that same power is available and alive in you. Do I need to say it again? I mean, seriously? Like, really? There is no way as a Jesus follower that, that, that you just look at that and you go, man, that's great. That's good news. Like, no, that is life changing. That, that literally uh, destroys the idea that I just want to have a normal relationship with God. You know, I just want this to just, like, God, let's just move it forward. And God, I pray for this church. I pray that this church and the decisions, that it would stay positive, that it would kind of make sense, predictable would be nice, God, uh, in my life and this church's life. And so I pray for that. I'll tell you what, you, you better understand and know that that is not what is going to happen if you go all in with Jesus. Because there is a power that is now available and inside of you. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And through that power now, God wants to work and do incredible things. And so I cannot just say, God, I want a normal experience. God, I don't want to just have this church do the things that we're just supposed to do. No, when I understand this, when I embrace this, when this is at the forefront of my mind, think about what my prayers consist of. Think about the steps of faith I take in my life. Think about what God could maybe even do with this church. That's what's in you. This is the power that you have when you think about evangelizing to someone and you have fear. This is the power available to overcome sin. This is the power you have to pursue holiness. The power to fight against the schemes of the enemy. The power that you have to, to go forward by faith in the mission that God has for you. That is all available to you. Paul is reminding them, you have this. Live in light of this. Go deeper. Go further in light of this. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do not have to fear death. Jesus has crushed it. In his famous chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul closes by saying, our labor as a result of the resurrection is not in vain. Our life has meaning. Jesus is not only alive forevermore, but he is also reigning forevermore. And Paul notes here the enthronement of Jesus. The enthronement. You know, in the early preaching in the book of Acts, uh, the resurrection of, of, of Christ enthroned, and, and the resurrection and Christ's enthronement were points of emphasis. They talked about this a lot when they were preaching. And the reason is because they were fulfillments of the messianic prophecies. When Jesus himself was brought before the Sanhedrin there, and they are, and they are trying to get him put on that cross, uh, literally Jesus claims to them that Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13 are about him. And, and we see this in Matthew 26.64, as Jesus is literally there on trial, and it says, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, that's where I'm going. And at that, it says, they tore their clothes and they said, kill him. Because they understood what that meant. To be at the right hand was a position of honor, authority, of, of favor, of victory, of power. And that position belonged to Jesus Christ alone, the Savior. And everything is under the reign of the seated king. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His throne is above principalities and power. He is above creation. He is above Satan. He is above everyone and every ruler and every title that anyone has had, that currently does have, or, current, or, or future will have. He's above it all. Paul even mentions over his enemies by using the phrase under his feet. Listen, I'm not a fan of spiders. I'm just not. When a spider goes crawling in my house, my foot, that spider is subjected to what I do with my foot. More likely than not, my foot is going to hit the floor, okay, and end that. But now, if you're an advocate for spiders, I'm just sorry, but this is a place of transparency, so I'm going to be transparent. But that, that's probably what's going to happen unless the Holy Spirit says don't do it, okay? And, but that is subjected to my foot. Everything, every evil, anything that you could ever go, man, this is too big. I don't know what to do. God, how will I get through this opposition? He says, even that, how big you may think it is, is subjected to my foot. And so just know that. Have that kind of confidence, church. Believers, have that kind of confidence. Move forward. Go deeper. And then finally, Paul mentions Christ's headship over the church. And here we see the amazing connection between Christ and and his church that Paul is going to expound upon even more in depth later in the book of Ephesians. Only the church is said to be his body. So the church should be important to us. The church isn't an afterthought. The church shouldn't be, oh, I, don't, I don't get it. Da, 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 da. No, the church should be important to us because it's, it's critical to Jesus. And it matters to Jesus so much so that he identifies himself with it. He is head over it. The church is not about a, a, a man or, or, or a pastor. Uh, like, like, listen, pastors come and pastors go, okay? You had one before, you're stuck with me for now, and you'll probably have another one. At, you know, at some point, I have no idea when, okay? So just hang on. But pastors come, they go. And if you go to another church, you're going to have another pastor, right? It's like, like, it's just, that's part of the deal. Listen, a pastor is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Okay, so, so even for me to pray about being a pastor is, Jesus, this is your church, what do you want to do? Because I sure don't want to get in your way. Paul also says that the church is Christ's fullness. I take, this, I take this difficult phrase in the passive sense rather than active, that we do not fill Christ, he fills us. And the reason for that is because um, I, I just tend to believe that there is nothing that I bring to the table that fulfills him, <laughs> that he needs me for but Paul is saying that Jesus' head over the church is filling in a special way with his spirit, his grace, and his gifts. It is his fullness. As Lord over all things, he fills all things. But this filling with the church is a different one. Only the church is his body. And he rules it and fills it in a special way. What this means is that we as a church are entirely dependent on Jesus Christ. What makes us something significant is our relationship to Jesus. He fills the church with his presence. And in, in John 15, 5, he says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him will what? Bear much fruit. Because apart from, from him, I can do what? Nothing. 
And so that's what comes out of this. That's what, that's what comes out of what we hope this church can do. That's what we hope is we individually, collectively, as believers, can move forward with. And we pray that, that just as this letter encouraged those readers, those listeners in these house churches, we pray and I pray that this encourages you, that it motivates you, that it inspires you, that it reminds you of who you are in Christ if you are a follower of Jesus. Because there's no way when you read these things, once again, that you can just say, man, this is just a normal religious experience. No, it's not. It's so much greater than that. And for it to be anything other than that, it means I am not saying, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Give me your wisdom. And not only that, but I'm then not asking God to do the unexplainable. We're not crying out to God and saying, God, you are all powerful. You are almighty. That same power that you demonstrated, rising Jesus from the dead, that is available to me. And so, God, I pray that my life marks that kind of power, that kind of faith as I move forward. My question is, how is my life different if I say I believe this? Today for us, how is our life different? How is my life different if Jesus is my Lord? How is, it, how, is, how is it different than it was? And, and, and I, I, as I was thinking about this and, and as Paul is praising them and then he's reminding them, I was, just, I was thinking about how many times I read scripture and I go, oh, I've read something similar or this sounds like that. But then I go, man, like when, when, when it starts to be repetitive at all, I go, huh, when I'm a parent and I repeat something to my kids, it's because I really want them to understand and know what I'm saying. I think there's a reason Paul says, you need to hear this again. And church, there's a reason you need to hear this. Because we leave and we are bombarded with information and distractions, and this, for whatever reason, this incredible truth, gets pushed to the back of our mind. So that we don't live in light of this. And you guys, like, like, like here, you go, oh, that's a downer. Well, I say that with a plea. I say that with a plea because we know by what happens in Revelation chapter 2, that this very church... This very church, the, the, the Ephesians, that it, that it would be said about this, that I have this against you. It says what? You have abandoned the love you first had. That's what's said about this church later on, years from this letter, that you have abandoned the love you first have. And so I just got to know, I got to believe that if he's saying you need to remember this, please remember this. Please keep this at the forefront of your mind. Please approach scripture with humility. Please continue to ask Holy Spirit to speak to you, to remind you, to be your advocate, to continue to push you forward by faith. Please keep that at the forefront of your mind because if it's not, you will be in danger of losing the love you first had. You have to fight for this, you guys. Just like any relationship that means something significant to you, you can't just go into that. You have to fight for it. And it's hard sometimes. But in this relationship with God, he says, remember this. Fight for this. And if this is at the forefront of your mind, I promise you, your life will be marked with the unexplainable. And this church will be marked with the unexplainable. And it will only point to an almighty, all-loving, all-powerful God. Let's pray.